Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. So we've got a lot to get into and, and not a ton of time. And so I, w- I want to jump right in. I know you sat down with Marty Ben on Real Vision uh, back in October for a great conversation. For those of you who haven't tuned into it, I highly recommend you do. Uh, but I do want to we'll try and minimize a bit of the overlap between our conversation and that interview. But I do want to start at the kind of very ground layer, just give people an idea of what your stance is and what your thoughts are on kind of the thesis of, of the Bitcoin standard, which was a great read. So at a very kind of high level, you know, what is the value proposition of Bitcoin to you? If I were to present it to an investor, I think the, uh, the, the nutshell, in a nutshell, I would say the key thing is that Bitcoin's supply is fixed. And it's the first asset that we've ever had in history that is liquid and 
strictly fixed in its supply, strictly scarce. We're never going to get more than 21 million uh, Bitcoins, whereas of everything else, we're always getting things. In, um, we can always make more. There's always an increase, and there's always a deeper mine to dig, and there's always more supply to be made. And as the price rises, we can always increase the supply. And so this is a completely new monetary and financial animal uh, that we've not seen before. And I think it's uh, it, it's worth um, it, it's definitely worth it uh, for an investor to look into it because um, it, it, you would expect just because of the simple mechanics of supply and demand that something whose supply cannot be increased, you would expect that uh, the only way in which increased demand can be met is through uh, an appreciation. And so that is what allows us to see why Bitcoin is appreciated around 900 million percent in the 11 years in which it has been trading. And that's why I think it is uh, worth a small uh, allocation in an investor's portfolio. Absolutely. And, and we're going to get to a, a lot of the uh, characteristics around Bitcoin because you bring up the hard cap supply. Definitely something we want to we want to come and circle back to. But in your book, I mean, you talk a lot about, you know, a, a lot of it actually is, is based on monetary history. Right. And going through different kind of currency regimes. And so, you know, I think what a good framework for this conversation would be around this idea of obviously fiat money, um, but kind of the rise and fall of fiat money over time. And so maybe you could give, you know, an example or two that really stuck out to you from your research about kind of the history of uh, nation state uh, currencies and kind of what starts to lead to the downfall uh, of them. Yeah, I mean, in my book, I discussed this, um, and, and before discussing government and nation state currencies, I use examples of primitive currencies because my thesis ultimately comes down to the hardness of the currency. And I think you see this playing out um, in third world countries when currencies collapse, and I've uh, uh, I've just witnessed one here uh, in Lebanon. Um, and uh, you, you see it happening in also in, in, in primitive media when when a, when there is a harder monetary asset that is able to hold on to its value better that is um, harder to produce whose supply can't be inflated easily that asset will likely continue to accrue increasing monetary premium because more people will want to hold on to it and so you see this in Lebanon where people hold dollars instead of uh, liras. Uh, you see it in Venezuela, where people move to the U.S. dollar instead of the Venezuelan uh, currency. And you see this happening over and over. You see it in economies that had seashells, where gold gets introduced, or in places that used um, glass beads, when glass beads were the most difficult thing to um, produce in those societies. They were you know, places where they didn't have glass-making technology. Glass beads were hard enough that the small quantities that were imported were scarce and rare enough that they could be used um, as a monetary medium, because nobody had the technology to print uh, glass beads. But once people had, uh, well, but once people started introducing gold into those areas, gold was much harder and it was much easier to make um, glass beads from abroad and import them into those places. And that eventually drove out the glass beads. So you see this dynamic playing out all over history that um, hard money eats out, eats. Uh, Easy money. Easy money continues to depreciate in value because the increased supply leads to a reduction in its value. And that leads to, A, the market value of it declining. And that leads to, you know, the, the secondary effect of it is that people will then uh, take their uh, wealth out of it and place it into other um, harder monies over time as they learn that people who use the harder money uh, acquire uh, are able to maintain their wealth better over time. 
I think one of the really interesting points you make throughout your book uh, is this concept, too, of, of how technology, right, and you alluded to this, how technology can actually play a pretty big role in terms of uh, kind of defining the evolution of hard money, right? Something that is hard money today, for example, maybe 100 or 200 years from now wouldn't be necessarily classified as hard money because of some of these technological advances. Is that, I mean, that's obviously something that's been very kind of prominent in some, some of your research. Are you seeing any of that today? And this obviously leads us into the Bitcoin kind of blockchain conversation here. Um, but I just love to get your take on kind of how technology has also start, started to shape, you know, the, the concept of hard money over time as well. Yeah, I think, you know, what I what I try and allude to in my book is that we're witnessing a, a, a seashell moment here for fiat currencies, possibly over the next few decades, um, because, you know, historically, what ended up being money all over the world was gold, which was the hardest. Um, metal, and I discussed this extensively before getting into government currencies. Um, the reason gold was money is because it is the thing that has the lowest supply rate uh, increase annually. And uh, you know, eventually, gold's role, mon- gold's monetary role, was subverted by the fact that um, its clearance was centralized, and so central banks and governments and their banking systems. And the legal infrastructure that surrounds that banking system became more important toward the monetary role of gold than the um, monetary metal itself, than the gold itself, because the gold itself, um, you know, you couldn't move it across the world as global trade became more and more international. So people needed to move their money further and further. They became more and more reliant on centralized houses for clearance in order to move that money. And that effectively um, forced people to deal with government money and that was really the story of the 20th century of, you know, centralization of gold reserves in central banks and then their replacement eventually with government forms of money. Uh, and, you know, within government forms of money, we notice the same dynamic happening, that the hardware currencies, the currencies whose supply increases at reliably uh, low rates relatively every year, like the, uh, you know, the euro and the U.S. dollar, they continue to uh, gain more value or at least hold on to their value better over time than the currencies that uh, have their supply increase massively and very quickly, like the Venezuelan Bolivar, for instance. So we see that same dynamic happening within national currencies. But effectively, if you want to use money internationally, up until a few years ago, the only way that you could send money internationally was to resort to these national global reserve currencies, the few currencies that you can send abroad. And you know, you could take your pick between them, but they all had inflation rates or supply growth rates, annual supply growth rates that were in the low percentage points. Well, now you're with Bitcoin, the technological innovation here, and I think the, 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 the seashell moment for fiat currencies is that unlike gold, Bitcoin is hard money. Bitcoin is hard money like gold, but unlike gold, it's hard money that you can ship across international borders without having to rely on the political and government, uh, governmental and um, uh, institutional structures of nation states in order to ship it across international borders. So we have the technical ability of moving this money around. So it has high liquidity because you could send, you know, a billion dollars from the U.S. to China in a couple of hours. You could receive uh, good enough clearance that could uh, clear that payment. Um, but and at the same time, it's also hard money. So I think. You know, if it continues to operate, if the Bitcoin continues to operate with the same reliability with which it operated over the last 10, 11 years, it's, it's, it's a pretty compelling monetary alternative. And I think that realization is going to dawn on more and more people over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in your book, you, you talk about this concept of saleability, right? Because you, you get into what the properties 
um, of different uh, monetary goods that historically have uh, uh, created some type of, you know, currency or reserve status. You talk about this idea of saleability, which, you know, in your own words, you define as the ease with which a good can be sold in the market whenever its holder desires with the least loss in its price, right? Really important. And so this concept you mentioned is liquidity, right? It's very, very critical for uh, any type of reserve asset, right? That's going to be globally used. How do you see the potential path to, let's say, a, a Bitcoin standard, right? And the reason, you know, I asked that is because do you see it as kind of going in phases where the next wave is maybe institutional investors? We talked about at the top of this, talking about getting a small sliver allocation, more sophisticated investors coming in and kind of bidding up the value, the market value of Bitcoin, and then eventually it becomes large enough and liquid enough for maybe some smaller central banks or financial institutions to come in. How do you just kind of think about the framework of, you know, the, the road to a Bitcoin standard, I guess you could say? Yeah. I think there's a lot of emphasis uh, in the Bitcoin space on the technical aspects of scaling and the um, uh, payment networks that need to build, be built about it. And while I think, of course, that's very important, I think there's, a, there's an equally important um, other aspect to scaling which doesn't get emphasized a lot, which is that what we're witnessing here is the scaling of a cash. This is a form of cash. And we generally don't see cash um, get introduced on the market quickly. Um, it, it hasn't happened before, but we're seeing it happen. I think if you look at what has happened over the last 10 years, you can see this process unfolding over time as just a continuous growth in the size of cash balances being held in Bitcoin around the world. And at this point, Bitcoin constitutes about 0.2% or 0.1% on how you calculate it of global cash balances. Um, when you count all national currencies uh, and gold, you get something around um, 1,000-fold what Bitcoin is at this point. So that's obviously not a lot, but it's also not nothing because there's a lot of currencies out there. And this is you know, equal to the size of some uh, middle-income countries' uh, national currencies. So Bitcoin is winning that share of cash balances in people's uh, pockets and people's balance sheets on a free market. But I think it's, it's you know, more important than the scaling capacity of how many transactions Bitcoin can handle or how many transactions second layer solutions on top of Bitcoin can handle is how quickly people can um, readjust their cash balances in favor of Bitcoin. And I think this is something that just cannot happen quickly. You can't just move all of your cash balances, whether you're an individual or a business or an institution, you can't just move all of your cash balances into Bitcoin because, you know, you have um, all of your income and all of your uh, payments have to be made in your other currencies, but it is possible to um, it, it is possible to include it as part of your portfolio of different currencies that you're including. And I think really that's Bitcoin has entered that conversation. For a small percentage of the world's population right now, it constitutes some percentage of their cash balance, some percentage of the amount of uh, currencies that they hold. Um, so it's a question of watching as this unfolds over time and witnessing those cash balances increase. I think the, the, the key value proposition in Bitcoin is that as people accrue small balances of it, what ends up happening is that there is an enormous amount of potential demand, but there is a very strict limit on how much the supply uh, increases, and the supply continues to come at a decreasing rate. So if, supply were to, if demand were to stay constant, Supply declines and so price rises, but then in turn, the price rise itself incentivizes people to um, look into it, and that becomes more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in a sense, it's, it's a cycle that can't be broken by anybody because nobody has the ability to 
uh, essentially turn it into a Ponzi by printing new Bitcoins. If somebody had the ability to make new Bitcoins to increase the 21 million supply, then this would be a Ponzi scheme. But the fact that we don't, and nobody's been able to do it in 10 years, shows you effectively why we see that, you know, as people go in, over time, their cash balances increase. So I think, you know, the, the, the forces that will accelerate this are the collapse of other currencies, which are going to lead people to look for alternatives, and also are going to just, you know, make Bitcoin win by default as all of its uh, uh, enemies begin to die, if that were to be uh, the case. But also, I think it's just as it continues to appreciate because of its limited supply, it's just going to naturally rise as a percentage of people's cash balances, which is eventually then going to result in it becoming more accepted worldwide as a method of payment, as a as a currency for payment uh, for trading and so on. So it needs to accrue a bigger a cash balance share over time, um, I, I think. And it, it's something that is going to have to be won over over a significant period of time, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point to make too, right, is that the uh, evolution of these types of things, right, and the rise and fall, again, of, of hard and sound money is not something that happens overnight, right? People have been talking about, you know, dethroning King Dollar, for example, and, and the risks of today's dollar standard, um, you know, for, for over a decade now, right, right, even right after the fin great financial crisis, you had a lot of people who came out and were talking about what the risks were. And obviously, today, we haven't <laughs> much improved upon that. Um, so I think that is an important point to bring up. And it, it almost kind of renders a question of, you know, how much of the monetary premium that we put into whether it's reserve currencies or now reserve assets. Is, is, it's a lot of it's a confidence game, right? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Um, in a sense, yes. Uh, but I think, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the confidence can only go so far. History shows that the confidence doesn't go long enough because, um, you know, if, if people trust it, then that creates the conditions for people to run it, to abuse it. And that's why the, the confidence has only ever historically been given by the market to the rules of chemistry, um, because these were the ones that people couldn't alter. You know, the reason gold was money is because nobody found a way to make gold cheaply. You have to make gold. You always have to pay in a significant amount of time and effort in order to try and um, produce more of it. 
so I think, you know, the, 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 yes, you're absolutely correct. People have been um, uh, calling for the death of the king dollar for a very long time, and it may well continue to survive. But I think what's different now about Bitcoin, as opposed to previous um, attempts at dethroning the dollar, or uh, at, at, at you know, the previous uh, ways of envisioning the fall of the dollars, that usually they had... Um, it, 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 for instance, people would think about the monetary uh, properties of gold versus the dollar, but it would miss the fact that the dollar controls the only payment network that really matters in the world, which is essentially the Federal Reserve's uh, account and the ability of people to send and receive money all over the world. Um, you know, you have to build an alternative to that if you want to compete. And some countries make noise about that, but the ability to enforce um, to get all the rest of the world's countries to come along with, say, Russia or China or any country looking to create an alternative to something like this is not easy. Um, it, it's very difficult for the U.S. to do it, and the system continues to have its own problems in the U.S. But, you know, building an alternative to it politically is extremely difficult. What Bitcoin does, which is different, is that it makes that a purely technical technological issue. It makes it just an open protocol that nobody can control. And that can function regardless of whatever the politicians of any specific country say, which therefore makes the money uh, extremely liquid across the world, regardless of um, what, uh, what what the politi political rules uh, mm. will dictate. So it's, um, uh, it, it, it's quite interesting in this regard that Bitcoin offers, um, you know, it, it, it offers us a way out of um, uh, the, the fiat system of which monetizes debt without necessarily having have to have that thing collapse because Bitcoin is operational even as that is operational. So people can um, can continuously switch onto Bitcoin at any point in time. And it's it's a much better prospect for the world than having to go through a collapse of the dollar system and then having to negotiate a new political uh, economic monetary order between whoever manages to win the next uh, world war. I think the fact that we now have uh, this insurance layer of this purely technical, purely apolitical money that exists everywhere in the world that anybody can utilize um, should hopefully make uh, currency uh, problems less uh, brutal all over the world over the next few decades. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point there in terms of the the ability to opt in, or, or I guess you'd say opt out of the current uh, fiat currency regime. I guess you'd say right because Bitcoin has this really these really unique properties of being non-sovereign, censorship resistant. The hard cap supplies, as you already mentioned, so definitely a very very unique asset. One of the things that I think is is interesting, and you you note this in your book, is just the concept of you know uh, increasing people's savings and the idea that again in this kind of fiat currency we're seeing it play out right before our eyes. This idea of debt monetization really kind of almost extracts uh, wealth away from you know your your average middle class or even lower income population, um, and it really kind of benefits those who who have are closest to the currency or, or have uh, accumulated a lot of assets denominated in that currency right with this currency devaluation. I think that's an important point to bring up that, you know, the changing of tides when it comes to these different fiat currency regimes, it, it, is it, it's not usually um, a, a, a very kind of light, soft process, right? There can be a lot of people who get significantly hurt because they're saving in these different fiat currencies. Um, and, 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 you know, you lose the confidence in those currencies and the, you know, I guess, assets that are dominating them as well. 
maybe talk through a little bit of that because I think that's a really important point right now, just looking at the world and how polarized we are and, and that income and wealth economic inequality gap only getting wider. This idea of being able to opt into or opt out of that system is, is certainly, you know, never been more important, I'd say. Yeah, I think um, uh, so. somebody was mentioning to me, um, their family had gone through the hyperinflation of Yugoslavia and they were telling me just the other day that, um, that their aunt was telling them, and, and their aunt is, uh, you know, she, she went to jail for dealing currency uh, in her shop for money laundering. Mm. Basically, she uh, took currency at uh, the market rate rather than the government uh, indicated rate. Uh. And, yeah, and, 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 you know, from a bit of experience, she says, the, the, the people who are very poor aren't necessarily hurt by currency collapses. And the people who are very rich also aren't really hurt because, you know, they have hard assets. But the people that are hurt are the ones that are working their way up, are the ones that have accumulated savings, are the people that have been rewarded, that have been working really hard to save for the long term. So, I th I, and I could see this happening in Lebanon now, you know, um, it, the, the, the sad and devastating thing about it is that the people who did the right thing by any measure imaginable, you know, people who worked hard, people who accumulated their wealth and didn't spend it all and worked on it, uh, worked on trying to accumulate wealth to a point that can change their life, one day, you know, they find out effectively their money's in the bank, they can't get it out. And, you know, now it's a question of are they going to be getting 5% or 10% or 20% of it? Or something like that, or maybe even zero percent of it, and so it's um, it, it, it's devastating for specifically because it takes away, I think, the the the, the, the shared acceptance in society that if you work, you if you sow, if you read, if you sow, you will reap. If you work, you will benefit. You know, if you save your money, you will find it tomorrow. And when you break that, you're effectively telling everybody that. You know, this is this is essentially a system of haves and have-nots. If you have resources, if you have a lot of wealth, if you come from a family that has managed to secure those things for you, you would have a lot of land, a lot of property, and a lot of business, and a lot of investment. And these things might lose some value during these crises. You know, these people obviously don't do great during these crises, but you still come out of it on the other side with your properties intact and with most of your wealth intact. But if you don't have that, then you know, your only legitimate way of uh, trying to achieve it, if not for yourself, even for your children, your only legitimate way is basically constantly getting frustrated. And it's and, and it, it, it tells everybody that, you know, don't play along with the rules of the game. Don't accept the system. And I think it's, it, it, it's devastating for, for, for the ability of people in the society to live together, to, 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 to accept that all the rules of society apply to them altogether. So I think... It's uh, it's quite devastating, and, and and the reason I think Bitcoin is is amazing, and it's going to be a while for people to get this, is that, you know, um, you can put some of your savings in Bitcoin and diversify away from your national uh, currency and its central bank. And I think for billions of people around the world, this is an, an enormously powerful uh, value proposition. No, absolutely. And the fact that it's a global asset too, right, allows you, it's, it's permissionless. Anybody can can save or put away as much wealth as they would want to or store it in Bitcoin. Again, you might have some some short-term volatility, which, you know, we, we can certainly talk about and discuss, but long-term, certainly get your points there. What do you think, kind of switching gears here, what do you think are 
is the biggest risk or are the biggest risks to Bitcoin right now uh, or, or over the longer term? Is it is it mass adoption? Is it people uh, simply not understanding uh, how Bitcoin operates or is it something that could be uh, potentially government influenced? I think my conception of risks and threats to Bitcoin is a little bit different. I think, you know, if we did get more government restrictions and um, regulations against Bitcoin, I would suspect this would actually be probably better for Bitcoin, not better, but this would be good for Bitcoin because it, un it, it emphasizes the value proposition. When governments place restrictions on it, people become curious and people see that Bitcoin continues to operate even though government banned And this, I think, um, just emphasizes the value proposition because uh, one day, you, you know, as is happening in Lebanon now, you, the, the, the monetary and banking system collapses and then you remember that, oh, they had banned that thing. Well, maybe. So I think, you know, trying to fight Bitcoin is, is, is quite, it could be counterproductive. What I think uh, is, uh, could actually be more dangerous for Bitcoin would be the opposite. I think, you know, if we do come out of this kind of uh, global mess that we're currently in with a new kind of gold standard or a new monetary system that, uh, that offers people a strong hard money all over the world that's liquid, that's uh, easy to transmit and send, and that doesn't have high inflation. It could be gold, you know, ideally in my mind, I would say they could be around gold. But even if it was, you know, very credible US uh, monetary policy around the dollar, um, giving a lot more uh, access to everybody in the world to use the dollar with a lot more freedom, I think that could potentially undermine the case for Bitcoin, I think, in the long run. Uh, well, not in the long run, in the medium run, but I think in the long run, um, you know, the, 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 the scarcity of Bitcoin um, is, is, is much more credibly maintained than the scarcity that you would expect to get from a political money. So, uh, but, but, but in, in my mind, the better monetary policies are and the better government monies are, um, the bigger the threat for Bitcoin policy. And it's an interesting idea that the, the return to an actual gold standard, right, could actually be one of the potential biggest risks to Bitcoin. And again, it being adopted and used. Today, let's, let, let, let's actually get on that route. Let's say we do return to some type of gold standard. Um, the largest holders, I mean, the U.S. Is, is one of the largest holders of gold today. I mean, if you went back to a gold standard, would that really reset things in, in the way in which, you know, a potential Bitcoin standard could? Um, would, it, would it be a marginal improvement? How do you how would you see the return to a gold standard? And is that even possible now, just given how far, uh, I guess, down this kind of fiat currency rabbit hole we've already gone? I mean, I, you can always get back on a gold standard. It's just about a matter of how much you're going to revalue your currency against gold. So if the U.S. were to say, all right, we want to use gold and, you know, turn the dollar into an instrument that's redeemable for physical gold for individuals and for central banks, then they need to effectively be uh, covering all of the outstanding dollar supply with physical gold. And that's a lot of dollars. And it's going to require some kind of evaluation. And effectively, you know, you're going to be supercharging gold's monetary premium by giving it wings, by letting it fly on the U.S. Fed, Federal Reserve's um, global uh, payment clearance and settlement system. So this would 
it, it could be done, I think, um, technically. The, the, the question that, of course, is political. But once you've gone on a gold standard, then, you know, government finance becomes like the finance of any other uh, entity. And governments have to start acting like responsible adults, which is <laughs> million for people who grew up in the fiat era where, you know, governments are just constantly borrowing. Um, you know, the national debt is just the largest number that anybody has ever heard in their life. And then it continues to grow, and then all the other numbers on all the other prices continue to follow in its wake. But, you know, before, uh, before fiat debt money was the standard under gold standard, this was not the case. Governments had a much harder time uh, financing themselves. They had to collect taxes because money is hard. You can't print your own money. You have to collect it. And so the difficult thing about a gold standard is, um, it is adhering to it. It's then, if, if you were to adhere to it, you cause a very, very fundamental restructuring of the political um, and economic structure of the world because um, a lot of the companies and firms and government-related um, uh, industries and uh, obligations and you know, trillions and trillions of dollars that are financed through uh, government inflation one way or the other need to start being financed through transparent taxation. You know, uh, taxation needs to be raised or bonds need to be sold in very transparent markets and nobody will be able to print gold to bail out uh, the governments. So I think, you know, if people saw the real cost of all of the crazy things that governments do, uh, I, I think that would cause things to change drastically. I think people would, uh, the world would be much better. But I think you know, I, I don't see how governments have the kind of discipline to impose something like this on themselves. And it may just be that they would leave the world and the market no choice but to go to, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin, which is to impose that discipline on them, whether they like it or not. Right. And, and you mentioned these record levels of uh, global debt levels, right, both in the public and also in the private space now, too. Uh, when you talk about we've got records, for example, the U.S., we got record debt to GDP levels and we're not even in you know wartime periods. Right? We're running basically debts that are, are historically uh, consistent with a wartime period. Um, and we certainly don't have I mean, you can make the argument that the fight against COVID is 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 quasi wartime period. But my point being, what is the logical way out of, you know, debt to GDP levels that are breaching 110, 120% aside from currency, unless you can raise taxes, right? And, and try to finance that and instill that confidence in the market that you, you're able to do that and you're able to finance that government debt. Currency debasement seems like one of the most logical or, or most likely outcomes from all this, right? It it would seem so, but I mean, of course, you, you have to remember the, the, the um, the deflationary impact of all of these um, uh, debts, uh, all of these defaults and bankruptcies, and um, you know, when a recession happens, it's not just uh, the money that they're printing; it's all of the um, liquidity that dries up. And so, um, I think it's you know, the, the real problem with this kind of monetary system is not just the inflation; uh, it's the crazy deflation that happens when a large amount of the money supply is destroyed because. If the money supply is debt, and then when you have a mass of bankruptcies happening because of the business cycle, then you're destroying a large amount of the money supply, which is also not what you would ideally want in your uh, monetary system. And that's something that, you know, advanced monetary systems like Bitcoin doesn't have. In it. Um, and, and, you know, chemistry doesn't do that. We don't have that problem with gold. We don't have a problem with large quantities of gold detonating and, and, and disappearing. 
um, because somebody borrowed them incorrectly or whatever. Uh, so I think the, um, the, the, there are no easy answers to that question. Um, there are no easy ways out of this global debt problem. But I think uh, Bitcoin is one practical individual solution for this problem. And I think if more people catch on to it, if Bitcoin, as I was saying earlier, if it continues to grow as part of people's cash balances, um, and it continues to appreciate in a way similar to what it has appreciated in the past, or even at a much lower rate in the long run, the interesting thing that happens is that as people move on to a hard money economy like Bitcoin, they no longer need to borrow much. And so if they don't need to borrow, they can pay off their debt. And if more and more people do this and the value of the Bitcoin-based economy continues to grow, then the need for people to continue to take on debt in the fiat-based economy declines. And maybe this is how we um, unfold and um, you know, put away this global house of cards that is the uh, global uh, paper money economy. Uh, and paper debt money uh, experiment. Um, maybe, maybe that's how it happens. You know, each initially individuals begin to accumulate cash balances, and once you know, in, in a hard money economy, as under the gold standard, people kept cash, people kept a hold of gold. They still invested, but they kept gold, and they, you know, debt was not what was not something common. People had savings and they had investments, and so I think if Bitcoin allows more and more people to move to that. It might be the market's uh, ingenious way of finding a solution to this global debt problem. Maybe this was not what the creator of Bitcoin had envisioned, but maybe this is the most uh, uh, productive use of Bitcoin. Maybe um, it as a monetary asset instead of using global debt as a monetary asset and continue to get the world into more and more debt. You know, maybe if we monetize a hard asset that can't be stopped by governments, maybe this is the best use of Bitcoin. Very interesting. Very interesting points there, for sure. And, and by no means trying to trying to put you on the spot there. I just think some of these 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 questions and conversations are just great to talk to because, to your point, there is no real you know perfect or right answer to some of these. Uh, I do want to get a couple of uh, questions from from the audience and from uh, some of our viewers here. One person is asking about the lack of privacy on using Bitcoin, as ISPs can see when you are using it. Is that a concern of yours? Yeah, I mean, in general, I try and tell people to. Um, not rely on Bitcoin privacy. I think uh, there are many ways in which your privacy can be uh, compromised. And I think, you know, unless you're one of the very top um, few dozen Bitcoin programmers, in which case you don't care what I think anyway, um, <laughs> then, it, you know, if you care about what I think about privacy, then you probably are not, you probably don't have enough privacy on Bitcoin. Um, so I think people should be extremely careful about this. Uh, the, this notion that Bitcoin is good for getting around law enforcement is, uh, I think, yeah, extremely misguided because you're leaving a record of the transaction over thousands and thousands of computers and you never know what um, angles of attack that you know, can, can be deployed. You're just one person and there are many millions of people out there and they could all think of different ways of uh, trying to relocate this. So unless you really, really know what you're doing, um, you know, you should not, you, you should not rely on any of the Bitcoin transactions being private. I, I don't think that that is an issue. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I struggle to see how this would be a problem for a base layer of Bitcoin. Um, it might just be the case that uh, anonymity is not so important because more and more of these base layer transactions will be done as settlement transactions between um, the equivalent of financial institutions which can, or something between, you know, different lightning nodes, 
which can provide their own customers with their own um, privacy protection on second layers. So I think you know, on a consumer level, privacy on Bitcoin is going to come as Bitcoin grows large enough for um, you know for, for 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 people to get off the main chain transaction and for there to be enough liquidity for you to be uh, dealing on, on on second layers with uh, market providers. I can see Bitcoin banks becoming like Swiss banks. Because Swiss banks, you know, the reason they were uh, secretive was because they had a free market in banks and they had a gold standard, and so they had to respect their customers. Unlike countries which have, you know, barbarian fiat standards, which uh, treat their customers like cattle, basically. Um, so I would see Bitcoin banking developing second layer privacy solutions on the market, but I would not rely on uh, uh, base layer privacy. Gotcha. So the so the layer two having the privacy and then the actual base layer, you know, Bitcoin blockchain being uh, primarily made up, let's say, of larger kind of as you, it's your point, settlement type transactions, not necessarily, you know, buying your, your cup of coffee at Starbucks, for example. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Uh, there's another one here, other than the te a technical compromise of the Bitcoin network or a universal government ban of Bitcoin. Is there any other risk that he is tracking to the adoption of Bitcoin globally? Um, I'd say, you know, the, 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 the improvements in monetary policy, but that doesn't look likely at any point. And, um, um, I mean, there's always the technical risk of, um, something happening with the, with, with the code, something wrong taking place. And that's why, you know, it's better that you run your own node and you look at the code and try and learn as much as you can from it. Um, I'd say the, the, the other risk that I think about primarily and related to this one, uh, it, it is the number of nodes. Is the number of nodes on the Bitcoin network declines? I think that compromises the decentralization and makes it um, more likely that um, you could have uh, some kind of fork that changes the characteristics of the network significantly. So I keep an eye on, on Bitcoin node numbers. If you see them dropping, then I, I, I would not consider that to be healthy. Interesting. Yep. No. Very. Very good point. And what was your kind of crypto or, or Bitcoin light bulb moment, right? What was the, the aha moment that, you know, a lot of this made sense? Or was it just kind of a progression over time of different things you were seeing and then you were finally looking for something that fit this criteria and it just happened to be Bitcoin? Was there a specific moment that you can think of that, uh, you know, you really kind of had that, that light bulb moment? Um, I mean, I think when I, when I came to Bitcoin, I first heard about it from the, in, from the perspective of economics that, look, this is, an, this, is an, this is a very hard asset that's like gold. And initially, I dismissed it for the longest time because I thought there's no way that something on the computer could work like gold. You know, it's just code. Somebody can change the code. And one day they'll change the code. One day government will throw them in jail. Uh, this will be a fun experiment if it lasts. And it'll teach some people about, you know, the realities of why gold and why government messes up money all the time. But it kept on not going away until about 2013. And it was really, I think it was, it was when the Silk Road uh, was shut down and Bitcoin, instead of going away, Bitcoin increased in value significantly, continued to operate. And that was the moment that I thought, that's incredible because, um, you know, I, in my mind, this was the Bitcoin failure scenario that was going to happen. In my mind, you know, I looked at Bitcoin early on and I'd already missed the train in my mind. And in my mind, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's already gone up so much, it's only going to go down. And, you know, government will find one website that uses Bitcoin, throw the guy in jail, and that'll be the end of it. I'll scare everyone. And I thought, you know, Bitcoin would crash and it would disappear, but it did not. And the fact that it did not 
made me begin to realize, okay, there's something interesting. And later on, I was to find out that one of the prosecutors, um, you know, initially, she said something about the fact that initially we thought, all right, let's go after Bitcoin. But then we realized that doesn't really make sense. And so they just went after the website itself, went after individual uh, people who had uh, been doing things that they didn't like, and they used Bitcoin itself to figure out what was actually going on. And for me, when that mental shift happened uh, with government officials realizing that, all right, this thing is out there and it works, and we can't put the cat back in the bag, we can't just shut it down, this thing is just operating. This is when I started realizing, okay, this thing might actually be for real. Like they can't just shut it down and it, it might actually work. And it's been six, seven years since that happened and it's still working. So quite interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I had a bit of a similar path in terms of my first initially was turned on to this or heard about Bitcoin. It was back in 2013. And I remember thinking the same thing. I mean, I, I came back to it a little later than you did back in 2016. And I, I just thought it's incredible this thing hasn't gone away. This thing has simply hasn't died. And I looked at it from a global macro perspective, just finding it absolutely fascinating. So, no, I, I think you, you make a lot of really good points there. Something else that someone was asking, they said they just finished reading the Bitcoin standard literally last night. Uh, would one categorize or would you categorize a Bitcoin as an asset um, or, or something like gold, a nascent currency? How do you think about kind of putting Bitcoin into a bucket or can you put Bitcoin into one bucket? It's not very easy because, you know, these buckets were invented before Bitcoin. And um, so, you know, Bitcoin is a new thing. Like you can't just put a car in, um, in, 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 in a species classification. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different um, monster. But it is an asset, I think. And, of course, ultimately all of these things define on the exact definition. And all kinds of people have different definitions. You know, some, there are different definitions of finance and in economics. Um, I think Bitcoin can be an, is an asset. Uh, functionally speaking, it works as an asset. I think it's a digital commodity. Um, that I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. It's a digital commodity. Um, it also functions as a currency. It's called it a currency. Um, and I think um, you know whether you call it money or not is an interesting uh, uh, is an interesting question with many uh, ways of looking at it. Um, it. It definitely performs the functions of money. It's not the generalized medium of exchange anywhere in the world or it's not generalized particularly uh, well in within any particular economy or society so you can't really call it a money perhaps yet um, it's arguable um, but you know I think more important than thinking about definitions is just trying to understand what is actually going on and uh, that's what I try and focus on yeah, no, absolutely. And then you, you talk about the, um, you know, properties that, that money typically uh, exhibits, right? And you have medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account. Um, are, are there any of those in particular that, that typically tend to come first with the others later? Because the way I look at Bitcoin, and I think it's, it might be a little bit, uh, maybe not necessarily unique, but the way in which I try and frame it is, even if Bitcoin doesn't necessarily become this global accepted medium of exchange in the next, let's say, two, three, even five years, I still do think it can serve as a potential store of value if you have enough people kind of buy into uh, everything that you know you've been outlining here today. Does Bitcoin have to become this you know globally accepted medium of exchange before it can get to that store of value property, or or, or how do you kind of think about the different uh, attributes that money uh, tends to hold? I mean, I think these are attributes rather than phases, so I don't mean. Really hmm like to uh, think of it chronologically as if one of them follows the other. I think you can't, you can't really be uh, a medium of exchange without being a store of value. Mm -hmm. um, 
functionally the two are inseparable. You have to store value in something in order to exchange it later on. If you're using it as a medium of exchange, that means for at least a specific period of time, it's going to be held in order to store value. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're using something as a store of value, you're also using it as a medium of exchange because um, you know, you're holding it on to it and later on exchanging it. Um, you know, you're not consuming it for its own sake. You're, you're, you're exchanging it. So I don't see this as being um, a matter of stages. I think it is a matter of um, just uh, a growing ability to play those roles uh, uh, with a growing number of people as the amount of cash balances held in Bitcoin increases over time. That's the way that I think about it. Gotcha. No, I, I love that. And unfortunately, we got we got to wrap up real soon. I'm going to ask you one last question here. What do you think is the kind of biggest thing going for Bitcoin right now? Uh, the fact that you know the supply has just gone down, uh, the new supply has gone down by half. So you know we used to have about uh, 1,800 bitcoins being produced every day up until last month. Now it's uh, 900 bitcoins, and the price is relatively the same. So I think you know if you think about it in terms of the market demand, um, the new supply has gone down significantly. So um, from a short-term perspective, I think this is probably uh, bullish. Um, and then from a long-term perspective, just the, the unrelenting emphasis every 10 minutes on the fact that Bitcoin arrives to consensus based on the same terms uh, devised 10, 11 years ago. And it continues to operate and the monetary policy is still intact. And as this continues to go on, while the world witnesses all kinds of crazy stuff happening, um, it's, it, as I think that's, you know, with, with every new block, somebody... It gets their uh, <laughs> new light bulb moment. You know, somebody out, out there, it's another block. Somebody realizes, okay, all of this stuff that has happened in the last 11 years, and this thing continues to operate with every new block. Every so I think that's uh, that's really still Bitcoin's main advantage. <laughs> right, the best thing Bitcoin can do is just keep doing its day job. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's that's fantastic. Well, listen, Sabadeen, really appreciate your time, obviously, today. I thought that was a great conversation. Uh, looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Stay safe out there. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Kevin. Take care.